Turn to John chapter 11. John's in the New Testament. It's the fourth book or the fourth book of the, the New Testament. John chapter 11. Chapter 11 is right before chapter 12. Case you're not familiar with how those chapter things work. I know we don't read much anymore, and so we like to scroll, and so we're not used to looking at those big numbers in bold. But if you're using paper, then you'll see that. Um, beginning next week until Easter, so for about 10 weeks, we're going to study the book of Zephaniah together. And so um, so my challenge to you this week as you're reading Mark and you have an extra um, couple of days, and I already misspoke, but, um, but as you have a couple of extra days in the book of Mark, we're going to study the book of Zechariah together. Am I say that correctly now? And um, so, um, so you would think after spending about three weeks studying it, I would know the name, but next week we'll prepare for that. Um, and in the book of Zechariah, uh, the, the minor prophet there, like we've talked about before, uh, with this major theme, uh, he talks about some really difficult things, things to, that have happened, things that are going to happen, uh, things about the Messiah that are really hard to comprehend. And so what I would ask you to do this week as you're um, praying, as you're thinking through things, study, look at, read through the book of Zechariah. If you use our Right Now Media link, um, there's a great a little um, a resource on there talking about how to read. Zachariah. You can type that in. If you're not familiar with Right Now Media and you don't use that, uh, you can use YouTube. If you're not familiar with YouTube and don't know how to use that, there are some printed papers back there that look like comic strips concerning the book of um, Zechariah. And so I, I would um, I would urge you this week to, to look at that and pray for that because um, over the next 10 weeks, we really are going to talk about some difficult things, uh, trying to uh, create or push us in maturity in Christ, uh, some things that aren't often talked about. Um, and, and I don't want to th- say things like, uh, I, I know it's like, well, we're immediately in our culture, we think, oh man, it's going to be like PG-13 or rated R stuff. I'm talking about things about God that we, uh, that we tend to shy away from, things that we are uh, Mostly because we don't, we can't comprehend it, and so because we can't, we can't comprehend it, we like to play the part of ignorance and just say, "Well, what I don't know is it going to really hurt me?" And so I think that uh, we should know more and more about God, and I think the book of Zechariah is going to help us in that. So spend some time this week reading, and then over the next ten weeks, we're going to talk about those things together and hopefully be challenged together. So in in, uh, in preparation for that, I want to talk today about John chapter eleven uh, because next week we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God plus. Uh, the, uh, the our human responsibility. Uh, what is it that we're supposed to be doing within the, the sovereignty of God? If God is the Lord Almighty, if He is Lord God, if He is these things that we sing about and we say and we pray to, uh, then what is our responsibility underneath Him as Lord or sovereign over over our lives? And with that, we have to look at sin, we have to look at brokenness, and we have to look at suffering within that context. And so, um, so though, though sin is not a new thing, um, it seems as if in our post, post-Christian world, uh, we're becoming more and more aware of brokenness, more and more aware of sin. Uh, we see it on, on the news. We, we read it in the newspaper. We see it on Facebook. Uh, in a variety of ways, we, we're uh, beginning to recognize sin. We, we see uh, particularly like with a topic like abortion. Uh, we get outraged and we become uh, you know, really just uh, almost vehement about what do we do about this, this particular, particular issue. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is look at how Christ handles suffering. Look at how Christ handles sin. Look at how Christ handles uh, brokenness. Look at how Christ handles uh, death, really. How does he handle these things? And then we as followers of him just follow his leadership. 
Just follow how he leads. I've told you the story before, but years ago on a spring break mission trip, uh, after training our students for weeks on what to do and how to act and what to say and uh, what not to say and what, what not to do, all those things, we're in the middle of the spring break mission trip, and I hear two students behind me. And I, I'm, I've called them out before, so I don't mind saying their names today. They're not here. Uh, but Garrett and Blake were behind me, and they were talking, and Blake turns to Garrett and says, I don't even know what we're supposed to be doing. And, and you know, as a parent or grandparent or teacher or leader, like how frustrating is that when you've spent years or weeks or days or hours or however you want to label it, training and teaching folks on, on how to act. And someone was to say, well, I don't even know what to do. And so I'm just listening, like ready in anger to turn around and say, you don't know what to do. I've been teaching you for years now on what to do. You've, you've been there. And Garrett says this in response to Blake's question of, I don't even know what to do. And Garrett said, I don't know what to do either. So now, temperature is even more rising, and now I have to say, okay, now do I know what to do? Like, where's the tables that I can throw on top of them? That Christ, how he would respond to this situation. And Garrett uh, continued, and I don't know what to do either. I just watch Matt, and whatever Matt does, then I do. And I thought, in that moment, now I'm in trouble. (laughs) There are people following me, and how am I going to lead them in this? What should I be doing? Am I doing the correct things? I'm going back to all the things I taught, the PowerPoints, the notes I handed out. Am I doing all these things that I told them that we're supposed to be doing? Now, I'm going to just, in my own defense, they didn't follow me well, okay? <laughs> that's what I would like to say. So anything, anything that they did wrong uh, was them, not me, all right? Because that's how, we, that's how we work, right? But I think in this particular age of outrage or age of sin that we're seeing, or what we're, we're experiencing ourselves, uh, we have to look at and say, who's our leader, and, and how does he respond to such, to such things? And I'm going to say suffering a lot, because sin does cause suffering, all right? You see it often. And I'm not saying that sin causes cancer or sin causes, uh, you know, abortion or, or those types of things, but I am saying that we, we are seeing that sin is causing suffering. We're seeing that sin, Christ says this, the Bible says this, uh, Paul recorded it for us, that sin, the result of sin really is death. And here we have a Savior who's pointing us to life, who's trying to resurrect us or bring us out of the grave, trying to lead us on the path of righteousness and holiness and life. And so sin is a terrible thing, and that's why we talk about it a lot. And not to put it aside and point at it and say, this is sin and this is what it looks like, and you guys stay away from it. But more about the understanding that as as people in this world, it ain't over there. Like sin's not over there waiting for you to creep over to and, and find it. And I know ain't's not a good word, but it's not over there, all right? Actually, sin, and this is why Christ has to do what he does and has done, is inside of you. And so with that, we look at it and say, I want this sin to be gone from me. We tend to often, we look at sin, point at it, and say, these are the terrible ones, and these are the ones I commit, so they're not so terrible, but these over here are the most terrible. And so how do we, how do we deal with that? What do we do with those terrible sins plus the ones that we're okay with? How do we handle those sins? We have to have a right view of sin. We have to have an, a greater understanding, just like how we have to have a high view of God and a greater understanding of Him. We have to understand why He would want to or desires to or provided the way for us to be saved from this deadly sin. 
sin that's causing suffering, um, you know, it's, it's creating a, a mess in our world. It's creating a broken world. It's creating messes in families and schools. It's creating messes in, in your job. It's creating messes. And I know a lot of you talk about this. We see it often. It's creating messes in the roundhouse. It's creating messes in the Capitol building. It's creating messes in Mecca. It's creating messes in Jerusalem. It's creating messes in Malaysia. I mean, it's creating messes everywhere. And so it has to be rid, we have to get rid of it. And the only way, the Bible is clear on this, the only way for sin to be wiped off this earth is through Christ. And so that's what we say often, preach the gospel to ourselves, remind ourselves of what Christ has done, is doing, and is going to do. And then also be, be ready and willing to preach that gospel to the world, that Christ is it. And that what he's done and is doing, all the completed work, all that is for, for his people to recognize that, to give him glory and say, let's, let's make the most, let's make the most of Christ. And so when we see sin, when we see suffering, when we see brokenness, we all kind of respond the same way. I'm not Jesus. Like there's no way I could die for someone else's sin. And so what's my response to it? How should I respond to someone else's brokenness? How should I respond to someone else's suffering? How should I respond to someone else's sin? Do I remove myself from that, no longer to be a part of that? Do I follow what Paul even said, bad morals corrupt good, or bad company corrupts good morals? Do I stay away from these things? Do I become like a Pharisee and say, I'll never go to those places because how do we respond to these things? I mean, some of you, some of you know this personally. Some of you have folks that you're friends with. Maybe they're in your family that have battled through an addiction or are battling through an addiction. And you think, how do I help them? Have you thought that? Have you asked that question? Have you pleaded with the Lord, Lord, what do I do in this situation? They're suffering. I see they're suffering because of their actions. So what do I do in this situation? How do I, how do I help them? And you plead and you beg and you cry because you want them to be changed. And then you try your own, in your own efforts to, to help them. I'm going to abide in Christ, so I think, but I'm going to use my own efforts to try and, to try and help them. What's, what's the, the best option for me? How am I going to help them in this, in this problem? And because we're human, and though, the, though many of us in this room this morning are saved, though we're human, we battle with, with a battle also. We tend to revert back to our own personalities and our own desires and our own feelings and our own emotions. And we see someone suffering and we say, what's the quickest way to help this person? Can I just throw some resources at them? Can I just uh, do these things? Uh, is there some kind of quick, quick help or resource or thing that I can do that might help their suffering? The problem is, and we've said this before, the problem is that suffering is like, like much of the work that we do or the much of the life that we live. It's like a crockpot. It's a, a long-term cooking thing. And we're willing just to resolve the matter with a microwave. Let's just get this done as quickly as possible. I mean, let me just tell you this. On Friday morning, our microwave went out. And by Friday mid-morning, we had a new microwave. We live in a microwave society that is desperate need of microwaves. Because we want quick, quick fixes and quick help. And when it tends to be a long-term thing, when it tends to linger on, our emotions and our feelings begin to play in the way that we are trying to resolve or solve this suffering. Isn't there something quicker that you can do? I mean, is this not the result of abortion? Is this not the topic of uh, why we're wanting to even uh, let, allow assisted suicide in the world, not just in New Mexico, but in the world? How can we help you end your suffering? 
And we look at these things like uh, your, your life is not the way that you think it should be or want or, or your desire is just not meeting your expectations. So what should we do? How can we quickly end this for you? And we as the church, as the folks belonging to Jesus, the people of God, those who have been adopted into his family, who are now little temples walking around representing the presence of the Lord, what are we pointing them to? How are we helping in this scenario? Suffering, it's a terrible thing. Brokenness, you see it everywhere. You watch the news and you, then you become a, a, a you know, person that's been affected by it and now you're feeling like suffering also. How do we help them? How do we help a person that's struggling with addiction or abortion or guilt or depression or financial strain or lust or anger, bitterness, gossip, any of these? Like how do we help them in their suffering? How do you get in the mud, let's say, without getting muddy? There's really no way. Unless you're hidden in Christ. Unless you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. If you're trying on your own effort to rescue someone from the mud, you're going to get muddy. I mean, we just did a perfect illustration of this. I mean, what better? I mean, what, what better day to rejoice? I mean, when, when Paul's, I mean, Paul, when, when King David wrote that this is the day and let us be glad and I rejoice in it, like the days I get to wear my swimming suit to church, let's rejoice in that, right? But what better picture of entering into baptismal waters with my son or, or Zach with Blake? You're entering into the same water. I mean, we're representing a sinner and a saint entering into the same water together. And then the saint baptizes the sinner, brings him up to new life, and they both walk out saints. Now, if Zach's a sinner, if I, I'm going to point out Zach because I'm not ever wrong. If Zach's a sinner and he's baptizing a sinner and they're both in the mud... What do they come out as? They, they both come out as sinners, full of mud, unless they're hidden in Christ. So how do we do this? How do we help in our world? And I think Jesus gives us a perfect example here in John chapter 11. Now John chapter 11 has probably one of the most famous verses of all Sunday school. It's the verse that when I was at my best friend's house, the Hoyles, and we were called on to, to quote a Bible verse and a missionary to pray for. I remembered the last missionary on the list of the IMB missionaries that were having a birthday. And then I also remembered John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept because it's pretty easy to remember. Why did Jesus weep? Why did he cry? Why was he moved to tears? Well, let's start. John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill. He was suffering. Was it sin that was creating us? I don't know. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So, hey, Lord, Lazarus, the guy that you love, is, is ill. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Let's stop there, because this is really important. What are we seeing right off about this man's suffering, about this man's illness? Who is it for? Is it that the result of his illness is that he might die? Or is it that the result of his illness is that God might receive the glory for it, and the Son also? We have to look at that in our world today. Suffering, illness, whatever the case may be, brokenness. How can Christ be glorified in this matter? You received the worst news this week, whatever it may be. How can Christ be glorified in that matter? 
You receive even a death notice, let's say. How can Christ be glorified in that moment? How can Christ be glorified in this suffering? And Christ is quick to say, this illness does not lead to death. Well, that's interesting. Is there hope in that? Hey, no worries. No worries about your brother because this illness that he has, it's just a cold, it's just a flu, he's going to get over it. No, he's pointing towards eternal things, not just towards these temporary things. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. So how can the suffering that you or a person you're trying to help lead to the glory of God and the glory of God's Son? This week, when you know of somebody or you've been helping somebody or you want to, to help with some, some tragic problem that's in the world today, our first question should always be, how can this lead to the glory of God and His Son? Well, what are we going to do? How is this going to lead to his glory? I'm telling you, if you're not inquiring of him, if you're not seeking his face and, and letting him allow, or allowing him to lead you, then it won't be for his glory. It will be for your glory. So we're looking at suffering and saying, oh, this is terrible. This illness is awful. We have to reframe it in the lens of the cross. Reframe it in the lens of the resurrected Savior that we have. Reframe it and not say, how can this, even this most trying, suffering time, this time of brokenness, this time where it seems a sin is rising, how can we use this for the glory of Christ? Verse 5 says this, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and, her, and their brother Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. I thought you loved them. You're going to stay longer? You're going to let this illness and brokenness and suffering linger? Verse 7, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Again, this is important. We're helping people that are suffering, and we have to understand that this is risky business. I mean, at this point, when we hear of someone's illness, when we hear someone's brokenness or suffering, when we say to the glory of Christ, we have to know that then... Our adversary, Satan, is, who is prowling around, begins to poke and prod and wage war against us, against our soul. It's at this point when we hear about suffering and illness and brokenness and sin, that we start thinking through our actions, thinking through our feelings, our emotions. We begin putting our personality and letting our personality run our lives and really start to persuade our next steps. And so in verse 8, we see this playing out. We see personalities. We see past experiences. We see uh, the problem of feelings and emotions rise up. Verse 8 says this. The disciples said to him, you know, the ones that have been following him, said to him, Rabbi or teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going to go there again? Remember this statement that you made? The last time I helped this person... The last time we went there, it was miserable. The last time we tried to do this, it didn't work out. The last time we tried to do this, we almost got stoned. And so we begin fighting that emotion. We begin fighting self, saying, this is not about me. In fact, one of our favorite quotes in our house right now is from the first Incredibles movie. Uh, Roxy yells it often. It's not about you, Bob. That's what the quote is. And Roxy runs around the house yelling that it's not about you, Bob. And everyone in our house is saying, we don't even have a Bob in this house, but we understand what you're talking about. That this moment, the disciples, and even today's disciples, must look at suffering and illness and brokenness and say, it's not about me. See, the disciples let their emotions rise up. Their personalities rise up. Their experiences from the past rise up. They begin to get afraid and fearful of what might happen to them. So they ask the question. 
They asked, Lord, are we sure about this? Do we want to go and try this again? Remember what happened last time. The disciples were fighting these human emotions at its highest. They tried to one-up the suffering of Lazarus and say that their suffering of being stoned to death was, was uh, more terrible than the, than the suffering that Lazarus was going through. And then Jesus simply teaches them and reminds them of something here. Jesus in verse 9 says this, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because light is not in him. So Jesus reminds them, let's not walk in darkness. And in fact, your attitude or your actions at this moment may be actions or attitudes of darkness. Let's walk in the light. John follows up in this in, in one of his other letters. He, he writes in 1 John 1, 5-10, This is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We want to walk in the light. And even this moment where they see darkness and suffering and illness, and they, and they remember the stoning that, that could have occurred, their immediate actions are to think about walking in darkness. How can we hide from this? And Jesus says, no, we are, we are agents of the light. We represent he who is light. In fact, I am light, so walk with me. And that's how we handle suffering as well, and illness and brokenness and sin as well. We continue to remain in the light. Lord, I don't want to walk in darkness any longer. I want to remain in the light. We must be quick to remember when we hear of the suffering of others, yes, we must try and help them for the glory of God. We must have empathy towards them, but we must be willing to enter into their suffering and help them. But we must not do this for our own glory, our own sake. We must not make their suffering sin to us as well. We must do this for the glory of Christ. We must continue to walk in the light without allowing darkness to creep in and receive the glory for ourselves. We must allow Christ, who is the light, to illuminate the problem, illuminate the sin, illuminate the suffering, and say Christ is the answer. The one who sheds light on this darkness is the one that we should be turning to. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 11. John 11, 11. I'll read it again to you. After this, after these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. So Jesus, at this point, kind of turns the picture, not just about suffering, but now about our responsibility, our responsibility, or our actions towards sin and suffering. How do we handle what's going on with Lazarus or someone else that you know that's suffering? What do we, how do we respond to this? And it's interesting that Jesus says, our friend. He brings up a point here. He says, our philos, philos, our dearly loved friend. Again, see, the disciples had forgotten this. They lost vision. Their vision had been blurred. They'd forgotten. Their attention and their emotion was affecting their actions. At the root of Jesus' desire to see Lazarus was love and the glory of the Father. Jesus was motivated by love. He responded to the sin and the suffering and the brokenness, not with hatred, but instead with love. 
No longer do we want Lazarus or his family to suffer in this moment, but instead let's respond to this with love. Let's go and act upon what's happening here. And so our, our response should be the same. When we see sin and suffering in this world, we don't begin to push blame and say, hey, you, you terrible sinners, but instead we look at them and say, I was in that place too. I was far from God, separated from him because of sin, no matter the degree or whatever you think. But instead, now let me just tell you as a minister of reconciliation, let me tell you how you can be rescued from that, from a love of the Father who can and the only one who can rescue you. Will he recover? Will Lazarus recover? Are you saying that he's just fallen asleep? The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Their, uh, Their hope is that they won't have to do anything. Didn't you just say he was asleep? Do we really need to go there? If he's just sleeping, won't he recover or wake up from that nap? Their their thought is maybe someone else can be a part of this. Sometimes when I lose hope, I think it's someone else's job, someone else's responsibility. Sometimes when I don't have peace or I'm struggling with something, I think somebody else needs to step up and do these things. No longer, no longer helping those who are in desperate need of hope of Jesus by me grabbing Jesus and holding him close to myself and putting him in embrace and saying, but at this point, look at my suffering. I'm suffering just, just as much, if not more, than these people. And all the while forgetting that I have Jesus hidden in him. I've been with him, walking with him. He has rescued me. I've been raised to newness of life in him. And I have a blurred vision often, as many of us do. We don't see the situation as as bad as it actually is. I mean, surely sin can't be this terrible, right? Surely, Surely the outcome of all these things can't be as terrible as the Bible thinks or says that they may be. Surely that won't be the case. And our, our vision gets blurred. And so we have to have a moment where Christ brings an awakening to us. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his, uh, let's go on to verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, but they thought it, that it, he meant he was taking a rest in his sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, because that's how we need it sometimes, just bluntly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. It almost seems like Jesus just said, I mean, take this for what it is. It almost seems like Jesus just said that he was glad that Lazarus died for the sake of Lazarus and for the sake of those around so that you may believe. But let us go to him. In verse 16, so Thomas, you know, the doubter called the twin said to his fellow disciples. And this moment is crazy. This moment right here is crazy. This is you and I entering into the suffering of others. Thomas says this, let us go also, that we may die with him. How crazy is that statement? To enter into the suffering of others. You know what? If Lazarus' death is better, let us go with him. We'll be with him. Echoing the words Paul later does, with to live as Christ and to die is gain. Understanding, have an eternal vision. Not just a temporary one, but instead understanding that 10,000 years from now, this moment is really important because Christ is making himself known to the glory of the Father. They're recognizing suffering and illness and brokenness and sin. And they're seeing that Jesus is the only way. So if Lazarus is better off dead, 
let us go that we may die with him. This is crazy. I mean, you're thinking, okay, well, wait a minute here. This was written in Greek, and Thomas was speaking in Greek, so can we have some clarity here? Because surely Thomas isn't really saying die, right? What he means by that is like a, a terrible suffering moment, a slap on the hand, a little cut, something like that. No, actually, the Greek word means to die, to separate from the former and to die. Thomas is making the statement, if death is better, let's go be with it. Let's go be with him. Now, deal with that this week however you would, however you would like. Verse 17 says this. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. He had been dead, and now he's in the tomb four days. Four days he's in the tomb. This is a problem. I mean, death is a problem, right? Resuscitation is a problem. You, you, maybe you know CPR, but have you ever tried to do CPR on someone that's been dead four days? I mean, this is a major problem. Now, there's an understanding that Jesus who has all power, and they've seen him do a number of things here, that he can, he can resolve this issue of death for sure. He could say whatever he wants to, and, and this, this death problem is just going to go away. I mean, this, this means Lazarus isn't just dead, but he's like really dead <laughs> in contemporary language, like really dead. It also means that his dead body is going to create a major problem for Jesus. If Jesus touches this dead body, the, the dead body of Lazarus, he will become unclean. Let me read to you Numbers 19, 11 through 13, which Jesus is really following through. It says this, Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day, and on the seventh day so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day, and on the seventh day he will not become clean. Verse 13 of Numbers 19 says this, Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Right, what did we say last week? I mean, Jesus is the temple. He's the representation of the tabernacle of the Lord. This going to Lazarus after he is dead creates a major problem for Jesus' purity it creates a major problem for his righteousness, for his cleanliness. It creates a major problem for him being the fulfillment of being the temple of the Lord. It goes on to say in Numbers 19, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. I mean, I know this is just for Lazarus' sake, right? Because the gospel is greater than this. I mean, I think that you're catching it already. But Christ comes to this moment saying, though it may create impurity in me for the glory of the Father. The disciples are catching this and have an awakening in their spirit. If this is better, let's go to the glory of the Father. Verse 17 again. Now when Jesus, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Rightfully so, they were there to, 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 as, the, as they were weeping, as they were suffering. People had gone and wrapped their arms around, me, around them. Even if they were paid, they were still there to wrap their arms around them. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, she has an understanding of Christ's power. She has an understanding that, hey, if you would have just showed up sooner... If you would have showed up sooner, then all this wouldn't have happened. Have you had that moment this past week? I know I have. Lord, you know, you see what's going on. You see the terribleness of our, we'll say it, nation, of our culture. You see it. You see the, the state of our world. What are you doing? 
Go ride and you come back. If you would have already come back, none of this would have happened. Have you had those thoughts this week? Same thought as, as Mary or Martha here. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 22, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, now at this moment, at this moment, Martha is at, at a typical human state. Let's get to reality, Jesus. I know, I know, I know. I've heard about the resurrection of the dead. I know in this moment, like we have this hope that in future time, at some point, we're all going to be resurrected from the dead. Yeah, I get it. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I mean, Jesus points to himself saying, you know what? Forget about that day. Look, who, look at who I am. Point your attention to me for the glory of God and for the glory of God's Son. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. Lord Almighty. Lord Sovereign. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What's the... What's the answer to abortion? Jesus. What's the answer to addictions? Jesus. What's the answer to gossip, to guilt, to to bitterness? Jesus. He is the answer to everything. What's the answer to greed? Jesus. What's the answer to the sin of comparison? Jesus. He is the answer to everything. And when Jesus had said all this, when he said all this, she went and called her sister, Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. In verse 29, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there, to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. I mean, this is what we're wanting. Can I just say this to you? Like we're wanting every person that is alive today that we know to bow at the feet of Jesus, to recognize who he is. We're not wanting them just to not abort a baby or just to not drink another beer or whatever the case may be. We're wanting them to bow at the feet of Jesus. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And you've got it memorized. Verse 35. Jesus wept. He was moved to the point of tears. Jesus saw the suffering of this family. He saw their brokenness. He saw death and was moved to do something. So he did. Verse 40. Uh, verse uh, 36. So, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. We know looking backwards now, something very similar happens when Christ resurrects because he is the resurrection and the life, moves the stone again. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So what do you do when you look at the stench of our society? 
and the stink of our society and the odor of brokenness and sin around us. How do we respond to that? If anything, if we follow Jesus, we should respond like he responds, right? Or do we respond out of our own emotions like Martha here? You know what? There's going to be an odor. Are we sure about this? Are we sure we want to roll away the stone and enter into this suffering moment, enter into this death? I really believe that in this moment, that Jesus could care less about the stink, but more about the sting of sin. He could care less about the odor, but more about resurrecting a dead life. He could care less about, uh, about his own reputation and more about the righteousness of those who should belong to him. Really an odor? You're really concerned about an odor? Jesus wasn't concerned with that. Instead, Jesus, verse 40, said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Not, if you believed, you would see Lazarus, your brother, walk out of the tomb. But instead, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of those people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. The creator of the world, the one that holds all things together, sent his son into this world so that he could save us from the stink, from the stench, from sin, from death, from the odor, to give us life. And so, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. This is crazy. So what happens next? Jesus making a point that he's less concerned about the things of this world or the odor that might happen or or what might get on him because he's comfortable and and, uh, content with who he is in the Father. He understands his righteousness. He understands his purpose in life. And he wants to glorify the Father. And so in that, he does. He glorifies the Father. And he cries out and raises Lazarus from the dead. And all saw it, right? This man who was dead has now came back to life and is walking out of the tomb. This is where it gets, I think, really personal for me. And then Jesus said to them, to those around, unbind him and let him go. Someone... Go over. Walk over to Lazarus. Remove the death clothes off of Lazarus. Unbind him. Show him where freedom is. Someone be willing to go and enter into the suffering of others. Don't be afraid about the once dead body. Someone go over. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus in the command of Jesus. Someone forget about who you are and see who Christ is. Walk over and help in the suffering that this person is going through. When it comes to brokenness and sin and suffering in our world today, we need people who are willing to say, I'm hidden in Christ. Confident of their salvation, willing to say, I will enter into the suffering of others. I won't just clap and cheer when someone else does it, but I'll be willing to step in myself. I will walk alongside Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering. I will provide opportunity for death close to be removed without worrying about odor or stench. I will see to glorify the Father and follow His will. So if there's any encouragement this morning in you, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind, doing nothing uh, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in all humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, what happened? God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.